Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine, maybe not Rossini's finest aria, but it holds up. It holds up. All right, you. Whoops! I just did something really bad with my uh, iPad. So we're going to go through three different topics here today. Um, uh, the second one is going to be expiration dates on food which turn out not to tell you when the food expires. It's a little, you know, it's a little bit of a twist that expiration dates actually do not, almost as sort of a matter of rule, uh, tell you when the food in question has expired. Uh, (laughs) And we'll also be talking about donkeys, because donkeys are just incredibly popular right now. But where did donkeys come from? I don't remember any of them before 1980. I think they're pretty recent. Uh, But... (laughs) <laughs> but before that, we're going to talk about pizza boxes. And here to do it uh, is really the person you want to talk to about pizza boxes. Uh, and that would be Scott Wiener, uh, a New York uh, pizza tour guide and the author of Viva la Pizza, The Art of the Pizza Box. Uh, he maintains a Guinness World Record collection of pizza boxes. Uh, and we're going to find out exactly how big that is. But maybe just to also to put this all into perspective, the number of pizza boxes placed on the market in the United United States annually is estimated to be three billion, three billion of these boxes, uh, which add up to about 600,000 tons of corrugated board. Uh, They represent about 1.7 percent of the 35.9 million tons of corrugated uh, uh, container board produced in the U.S. annually. annually. This is sort of why the planet's in trouble. I mean, not pizza boxes, but just a lot of stuff. And when we get to expiration dates, there's going to be even more stuff getting thrown out and stuff not being used well. But, Scott, we should begin by acknowledging that a pizza, doc, pizza box done well can be uh, a beautiful thing. So talk a little bit about your collection and, and what you're looking for. How does something get in to the Wiener collection? <laughs> it's you know, At first, the bar was very low. The bar had to be, it was a box that I didn't have. Now that my New York apartment space is seems to be shrinking because of the number of boxes, now it has more to do with a box that seems to be unique among the batch that I've already seen. So now I'm looking for things that I hadn't seen before. Ten years ago, everything was fresh. Right. Although I think, you know, for a lot of people, there's this kind of default idea of what a pizza box looks right, looks like and that it has – a picture of a more or less Italian-looking chef with a chef's hat uh, or toque or whatever they're called, uh, and he's twirling his mustache with one of his, one, one hand. Um, now, the truth is that's a very outdated idea of what can be on a pizza box and what a pizza box can look like. So um, tell us a little bit about sort of changes that you see. In other words, if something has to be special to get into your collection now, how, how, does, it, how does it manage to be special? Well, I, I think you're right that the, the boxes of 20, 30 years ago were really simple, single color, probably red ink, kind of smudgy ink. 
And now the technology has changed so much that people are doing digital printing, which allows you to do multiple colors without spending a ton of money. And so now the boxes are just getting so much better. So what I always look for is like full color. I never would have seen that 30 years ago. So if I see full color or multiple color, I love it. If I see ink going up to the edge of the box, I love it. It used to be that there was that untouchable border because the technology that they used to use was flexographic printing. So it's like stamping a big print onto the top of the box. And now they're doing digital print. So it's just, you don't have to worry about this wet ink. So much more color these days. So we should also say that your collection is not um, confined to the pizza boxes of the United States. And it does seem that as you pull away from our shores, some interesting things start to happen. For example, you have a pizza box, I believe, from Amsterdam, where there's sort of Simpsons-like people. <laughs> it's almost It would almost be a really good <laughs> Simpsons episode to see like how far you could depart from The Simpsons and still look like The Simpsons and not get sued. But I, that seemed to... I, I'm assuming that they did not license Simpsons images to put on this pizza box. I, the box you're talking about is one of my absolute favorites, and I'll never forget the day I got it. And it, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a Bart-ish character and a Homer-ish character. And the thing about this box is that it's it's full color. I love that. And in the corner, um, you know, that there's this Bart Simpson character on a skateboard. And when I wrote the book, I wanted to use the image in the book, but I had to count. I had to contact 20th Century Fox and Matt Groening and all the people involved with The Simpsons. And it turns out they'd never seen it. They'd never heard of it. And to me, that's the most collectible box is the intellectual property violation pizza box. I love it. So anybody who's ever been to Japan also knows that um, things in Japan kind of look different and they often are more creatively done. I'm looking at one of your pizza boxes right now and, and from Japan, and it's actually a Domino's pizza box, but it looks like some kind of wild anime, you know, uh, Miyazaki kind of dream is happening on this pizza box. I think you're talking about the limited edition 2013 Hatsune Miku Vocaloid box. And that's a, it's <laughs> of it's course I was. I, I thought that was self evident, Scott. But yes, anyway, continue. <laughs> but so the way that they printed those boxes is it's such fine detail and it's such intricate artwork because unlike American boxes where the box is produced and then the image is printed, those pre print boxes in Japan, the imagery is put onto the piece of paper before the box is produced. So that paper is already printed, nice, smooth, perfect printing. And then it gets attached to an outer liner and then a fluted inner medium, which creates the corrugation. So that box in particular is great because it's an augmented reality box. So you download the Domino's Japan app and you point your mobile phone at the at the image on the box. And then uh, your screen comes to life with this character in the center of the box. And the way you hold your phone around the box allows you to interact with this pizza box as entertainment. And it's incredible technology that's really just phone technology. You know, it's, it's smartphone technology, but it's using the image, which you can only do with perfect printing the way they've done it in this Japan box. Right. And I mean, the image has to it really pops in a way that it would be hard to do just printing directly onto the cardboard or, or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and a, a normal human looking at that box does not think this is a pizza box. I mean, yeah, if, if it's 1985 and you go to a pizzeria and you pick that up, it's definitely from the future. 
So um, I've seen other stuff from uh, coming out of Asia that's similar in terms of um, sort of technological interfaces. I saw one from Hong Kong where there's kind of a lens that you can put on a hole in the box. And then I think you put your you, you do another QR code read or something like that. But then you put your phone inside the box and it projects through the lens. I mean, it's we're, this, these are sort of the Jetsons uh, are ordering pizza and getting these kinds of boxes, it feels like. Yeah, I actually have a full set of those. That's I think it was the Pizza Hut UK boxes where they come with the lens and the little stand for your phone and it turns into a film projector. And yeah, you you scan the top of the box and your smartphone goes right to a page that has this short film created by the pizza company and it plays backwards on your device so that when it goes through the lens, it's projected perfectly. And it's, I mean, all this stuff is done because you don't expect a pizza box to ever do this. And the way to get any attention today on social media is to do the thing that's, oh, did you know that? Or I bet you didn't know this. And those pizza boxes were were a big deal for me. <laughs> and you're the only person I've ever heard mention them since I saw them come out. Well, they are. It is sort of an amazing idea. It might be devotion worthy of a better cause, uh, but uh, it's not for me to say. Well, the thing that we really want pizza boxes to do, of course, is to – um, create conditions, internal conditions under which our pizza will arrive in a fairly palatable, enjoyable, delicious state. So how good at pizza box, are pizza boxes at that? And I mean, it's sort of weird because there are all these really interesting, you know, clever hacks like, you know, pizza boxes that will show you a movie. But have pizza boxes gotten better at, you know, just sort of containing pizza? They have not changed very much in the past 65 years. And that to me as a pizza lover is a problem. And that's why the true irony of my life, having this giant collection of pizza boxes, is that I do not eat takeout or delivery pizza. I just I just don't. My collection is all clean. I don't order pizza in. So I don't I don't worry about saving those boxes. It's because they trap steam when they're produced with recycled fiber, if it's low quality, then you might taste and smell the cardboard in the product. But I think most people have gotten used to those characteristics. So that becomes part of the flavor of pizza. And us looking at pizza boxes as this imperfect product is an idealistic view and maybe maybe doesn't make much sense to assume that things are gonna change very much because the way pizza boxes are produced now makes a lot of sense. They're economical and they do the job that we expect them to do. If we suddenly have raised expectations, that's the first time that in history anybody will be really that upset at a pizza box. But yeah, because people are so happy to have the pizza. Um, on the other hand, you know, you might be paying forty bucks for that pizza uh, if it's a pretty fancy pizza, and you know, and then you're dumping it into uh, or they're put placing it inside a technology that really isn't kind of commensurate with the amount of artistry that goes into the pizza. And yeah, I did a fair amount of reading for this and steam keeps coming up. Steam is like a steam is a real issue. Uh, and you'd think, well, I like how hard would it uh, the problem I guess is if you're going to vent the steam, you're going to cool the pizza too quickly. Precisely. That's why they're the best technology in boxes is the technology that will reduce the relative humidity inside the box without reducing the temperature too greatly. And that means that you can't have direct ventilation. A pizza box with 50 holes in it is going to create a new problem of having a pizza that cools down too fast. So you can't do that. Some successful boxes are ones that have 
a liner on the inside of the box that's conductive of heat while allowing steam to escape or other boxes that maybe let steam escape uh, through the fluting of the box rather than directly. So you, you have much more contact between the paper and the pizza and that conduction should keep it warmer longer. The um, I actually, for reasons I can't even adequately explain, own one of those big red things, the insulated things that you see like Uber Eats people put the pizza into, which is kind of crazy and dumb, except that it probably, you know, if you combined a little bit better venting with that thing, maybe the steam wouldn't be trapped really close to the pizza and making, I mean, the problem with the steam, obviously, is making the crust soggy, probably making everything a little bit soggy. So uh, you just do sort of wonder <laughs> why we're happy with, well, pizza's become much more of an exalted food. It isn't just sort of the kind of, you know, it was in, when I was growing up, pizza was something that you got because your mom didn't want to cook or whatever. It's not like that. People really seek out pizza experiences now. It just feels like we're, we're stuck with, with something that doesn't really measure up to them. Yeah, and I think there's two ways this could go. Hopefully, it will push more people to just go to the pizzeria because that's always going to be the best experience. But since right now, you mentioned $40 pizzas, it's not unlikely to buy a pizza for $40 right now because the costs of cheese and flour and everything is up. And when those costs go down for the pizzerias, it's unlikely that pizzerias will be that quick to lower their prices. So there may be an opportunity to build in a cost of a better box, where right now, if you buy a pizza for $18 and then the pizzeria says, well, hey, if you want to pay us another five bucks, we'll give you a really fancy box that serves the pizza uh, with less humidity. I don't know if people are going to jump for that. But if it's a built-in cost, like it, we usually assume it to be, there may be an opportunity in the next five or 10 years. So, um, Scott Wiener, before we go, we should also talk a little bit about recycling. And it seems as though there was a long period of time where people thought they couldn't recycle a pizza box. Maybe even recycling entities didn't think you can recycle a pizza box because it would have maybe some grease, maybe a little bit of cheese on it. That whole thing seems to have changed. I mean, everybody from the Sierra Club to uh, the paper industry is basically saying, oh, no, you, you can recycle these things. Yeah, the technology of recycling has improved. So this study that just came out maybe a year and a half ago says that any corrugated pizza box, even if soiled with cheese and grease and whatever, is totally recyclable. Now, that's if it's a corrugated box. They didn't do tests on the paperboard boxes, the thinner paper boxes, but most people are getting corrugated anyway. So yeah, good public service announcement right now. Even if your municipality doesn't want to collect them, they are technically recyclable. So the best thing to do, call up your local municipality and and tell them that and try to get them to change their literature because there's a big disconnect between the stickers that they give you to put on the side of your recycling bin and what actually happens at the paper pulping plant. So last thing, um, I'm just wondering if you've ever seen anything like this. And if you haven't, then you and I should invent it and get rich from it. Because the other problem with the pizza box, once you're done with your pizza, is that it's it's unwieldy. It's big and cumbersome. And I've always thought that a collapsible pizza box, you know, one that you just sort of could easily... I, I, I realize the structural integrity needed to do all the things that we were talking about before, keep the pizza hot, keep the pizza safe, you know, is one of the reasons you can't very easily sort of just fold it up and, you know, find a convenient place for it in your recycling bin. But have you sort of seen any pizza boxes that were a little bit more amenable to that kind of thing? You know what? If it hadn't already existed, we would be coming up with it right now. But <laughs> there is a box 
It's called the smart box. And, you know, when the boxes are produced, there's a die that cuts the shape of the box and all the perforations and the score lines. And what they've done is they've created a die that will, that will allow you to have a box that tears apart and the lid becomes four plates. And then the base of the box folds into itself and becomes storage for your leftovers. So it's totally collapsible. It's easy to rip apart because it's perforated. Wow. I feel like we are the Jetsons. Um, we have to stop there. Scott Wiener uh, is a New York-based uh, tour pizza tour guide and the author of Viva la Pizza, The Art of the Pizza Box. Now we're going to uh, take a little break and come back and talk to you about expiration dates, but not about pizza expiration dates. I don't even know what those would be. Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes made of ticky-tacky Little boxes on the hillside Little boxes all the same There's a pink one and a green one And a blue one and a yellow one And they're all made out of ticky-tacky And they all look just the same Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. I had to get this off my chest, had to be said. You're stuck in my head You said that it's not black and white But I know I'm still Coming over tonight No, it might be the last time Wish that we could go further But for now it's alright It is indeed time to talk about expiration dates. And, you know, it seems like a pretty self-explanatory term, right? The expiration date tells you when the food that you are looking at will expire. Uh, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. And, and unfortunately, <laughs> that's not a particularly good explanation <laughs> of what an expiration date is. Here to give us a good explanation uh, is Brian Rowe, Van Buren professor in the Department of Agriculture, Environmental and Development Economics at Ohio State University. He leads the Ohio State Food Waste Collaborative. Uh, and he's with us now. Brian Rowe, welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. 
So we're going to be talking about the fact that, you know, I mean, the can of beans sitting in your pantry is probably going to last a lot longer than the date that is stamped on it. Uh, if you haven't done anything bad to it uh, or, you know, it does, the button hasn't popped up or anything like that. So so what is that damn date? What does it even mean? Most dates on food products typically refer to the manufacturer's kind of best guess for the date after which the quality begins to kind of go downhill. And so, but there's an exception. There are some foods where that date is more important for safety issues. Foods like deli meats, where you can get some pretty nasty um, bacteria in there and where the food typically doesn't go through uh, a cooking or a kill step uh, before you eat it. Right. And also baby food is the one where it's like in a whole separate category, uh, right? Yeah. In fact, baby food is the only one that's truly an expiration date because of the uh, the reduction in the nutrient capabilities. Everything else is not truly an expiration date. It's usually a best buy or a use by date. So, yeah. So this is, I mean, or, or often it'll say enjoy by. Yeah. Uh, and maybe they're tipping their hand there. What they're really saying is, we want you to have a really good experience eating this thing. So this is our best guess, as you just said, about when you know the last possible time would be that we could guarantee it would be a wonderful experience for you, which is really, really different from how people are. There's a huge gap here between that and how people interpret it. There are food banks that won't take food that are that's past that date stamped on the can. And people are throwing out, uh, as I'm sure your organization would be happy to tell us, uh, the Food Waste Collaborative would be happy to tell us people are just throwing out a lot of food they could be using. Could you say a little bit more about that, though? Yeah. I mean, the best estimates nationally come from a group called uh, Rethinking food waste through economics and data, they go with the acronym REFED, their estimates are that about uh, seven, maybe 10% of all consumer food waste is due to people's confusion over those label dates. So that's that's a lot. Um, and, and as I said, also, there's some food that could be going to food banks, but they... I understand why they would want to be super cautious about their clientele. They don't want their clientele to have to, uh, you know, engender or experience some risk that the other the donors didn't have to. But if the food's good, the food's edible, and all that kind of stuff, it just once again seems tragic. So one thing that I'm reading a lot as we go through all this is that okay, let's say you're not going to necessarily trust the dates, um, or, or you're going to know anyway that things are, in fact, viable uh, a lot longer than what it says. So is it sort of just trust your nose? So, yeah, for the, that great uh, uh, major group of foods where the safety is not an issue, you know, using your nose, using your eyes, looking for those spoilage indicators of uh, odd smells, um, visible molds are the way to go. But again, there are those tricky ones. Um, deli meats being a key one, soft cheeses, where things like um, a salmonella might not smell bad, but they can really put you on your on your rear end if you if you don't watch out or even kill you in certain circumstances. So that's the real issue here is balancing that issue between waste and safety. Yeah, and it seems like I, I don't know um, how significant this is, but one thing that I do do, I, I probably picked this up from somebody, probably my mother or something, is I listen, I listen for the little pop if I'm opening a jar, uh, or the little hiss uh, as the the biting part of the can opener uh, cuts through the little bit of metal. If I hear that comforting little hiss or pop, uh, I feel like I'm. Uh, I'm on a really good footing because, I mean, an, another concern, yeah, there's like listeria and, and salmonella, but you don't want to get botulism either. 
Correct. Yeah. And so there is a great um, resource from the federal government, the Food Keeper app. They also have a website and it really helps individuals to uh, put in their food that they're looking at and give some very sound advice about when safety issues will typically arise for those products. So you did a study of milk and consumers of milk and storage of milk. Um, what did you discover? Yeah, I mean, milk is one of these things that's pasteurized. So, you know, the safety issue really isn't an issue because it's uh, milk has been pasteurized. But those dates loom large in people's uh, everyday lives, right? We look at that date and uh, we look askance at those products that are out of date. We actually took the dates off of milk and had people tell us if they would um, keep it or toss it. And all they could use basically was looking at it and sniffing it. And sure enough, when you took the dates off of milk, even if it was, you know, 20, 30 days after a typically uh, a date would be passed, people were willing to give that milk a second chance. But we also had some milk that was fairly new uh, and it just had a weird flavor note that gave it a little bit of an odd smell to it. And there, if the date was on it, people gave it a second chance. But if the date wasn't on that label, they were more likely to say they were going to toss it out, even though it was only you know five or six days old. It, it's probably worth mentioning that there's sort of a hierarchy of, a, of effectiveness in terms of the material in which a food is stored, uh, plastic being maybe the most porous, glass being a bit better, and metal being better than even glass. Is that is that a good sort of rule of thumb? Yeah, packaging does make a difference. Um, and uh, people are uh, uh, putting new packages out and new ways to actually measure uh, food's uh, freshness with those labels as well. We've got some very interesting things called time temperature integrators, which uh, kind of wind down a clock and let you know, oh, somebody out left this milk out on the fridge for out of the fridge for a couple of hours, and its freshness actually degraded about a day's worth of time while you left it out on the counter um, during the summer. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I would really so, and that would maybe even be usable for, say, a can in your pantry or something. I'm, there's something's happened to this can, and the can is smart enough to kind of know that, so to speak. Yeah, it's typically been used for refrigerated items, so that if um, a truck gets stopped and maybe the refrigerator in the truck goes off for um, a half a day, then all of a sudden you're pretty aware that something's gone uh, scans with with that delivery. But it can also be used at the consumer level. You're seeing this happen a bit more in Europe in particular, and some of those labels are also making their way to the U.S. market. I will say that uh, I have uh, a milk person. Uh, I don't have a milkman. It's actually a, a milk woman. Uh, I have milk delivered to my house the old way, and it comes in glass bottles. Uh, and I haven't had any milk even come close to going bad. I wouldn't even know what that would be like. I mean, by the time that we use it, it's it seems like very, very fresh and gets used up uh, pretty quickly. So, I mean, in some of the old ways were probably kind of better ways of of dealing with a thing like milk than some of these, although this obviously these smart materials seem very appealing too. Yeah, no, there's lots of uh, technology coming on board that could be helpful here. So um, we should also say, as long as we're talking about milk, um, it's also true that it varies from state to state, right? Uh, what they'll tell you, right? Like one state will say, okay, 14 days from the time it's packaged or something, that's what the date yeah. is going to be, right? There isn't a uh, sort of uniformity that covers all 50 states in the ter territories of the United States. 
it is a patchwork and it has some amazing effects. Uh, I have colleagues who did a study, New York City used to have a rule where I believe it was, I think it was 14 days, the date after packaging had to be 14 days later. And uh, they finally released that um, and got and loosened that rule. And most people put out about 17, 18 days after pasteurization would be the date they would put on those packages. And they traced that people ended up wasting about 10% less milk in New York City after that uh, regulation was loosened, uh, just because you know, people weren't throwing it out because the date uh, surpassed and they kind of automatically behaviorally triggered themselves to dump the milk out. So, I mean, just to go back to where we started, the problem yeah. is that the manufacturers are putting dates on cans and jars and stuff like that that are not reflective of the utility or safety of the food. They have more to do with when you would be happiest. And if you were unhappy, they could probably say, oh, well, did you did you open it three weeks after the date on there? Because that's maybe why you didn't like the pickle so much. Um, but this is a problem. I mean, it, it is a problem for food waste. It's a problem for, for food yeah. donations. So is there any way to work with these people and say, <laughs> Could you be a little less conservative about this so we're not – I mean, I suppose they're happy yeah. if you throw out food because then you have to buy more of it. Yeah, it's a coordination issue, right? Because you could get one group, uh, maybe one manufacturer who really wants to do this and they'll push their date out by a few days or a few weeks for shelf-stable items. But then if their other competitors don't do that, then they're kind of at risk of being the ones who have product that is in date and past its peak in quality. You really need some effort across manufacturers to all push those dates back by a few days or a few weeks, depending upon the, the product category in order to make sure that uh, nobody's kind of milking the system to um, kind of look better than all their competitors. Milking the system. I see what you did yeah, there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, well, I, you know, I feel like Congress is right now is going through an, an age of Pericles, a real golden age of, of governance and and uh, excellence. There should be no problem uh, pushing through something. Well, um, weirdly, food waste is one of the very few nonpartisan <laughs> issues that actually has bipartisan support. Um, uh, in the uh, December, there was a food waste reduction uh, elements passed that allows for more liability protection. Uh, for people who are trying to recover food and um, provide more protections to people who are acting in good faith and only trying to either donate or merely recover their costs of recovering food to be able to donate it to people. So I think there weirdly is potential scope here because it's not a terribly partisan issue. All right. Yeah. Although, in fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene likes to eat spoiled food. So um, Brian Rowe is Van Buren professor uh, in the Department of Agriculture, Environmental and Development Economics at Ohio State University. He leads the Ohio State Food Waste Collaborative. Thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. All right. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to ask you to listen to the people who are talking to you and then possibly respond to them by making a little pledge here. If you do it during our hour, it kind of goes in a little nice little markets made in the book of life on our behalf. We're back, and it's time to thank Dylan Rays, who's sitting in for Cat Pastor today as technical producer, uh, and also the producer of this episode is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, her name is Lily Tyson, but you probably know that by now. So, you know, it really is kind of true. 
Well, let me just bit back up and say that um, I've always found donkeys to be kind of fascinating and mysterious. And part of that is because in the 1970s and maybe all the way up to 1980, I don't really remember, I spent quite a bit of time on the island of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, and they had uh, sugar plantations there in the past. Uh, they had donkeys there to work on the sugar plantations. Eventually, there were uprisings, uh, and the sugar plantations were, which ran on slaves. The slaves revolted, and uh, this is all basically at least what the locals tell you about. And the, so the donkeys just ran off into the jungle, uh, and they became nocturnal. So it's <laughs> It's well, walking along a quiet road in St. John in the 1970s. It wasn't unusual to have this kind of Midsummer Night's Dream moment where suddenly a big donkey head would thrust through some palm fronds and look at you. Uh, but donkeys are everywhere right now. They're in the movie The Banshees of Inishir in the form of a miniature donkey whose real life name, I believe, is Jenny. Triangle of Sadness. And, of course, Eo, the title role, is uh, of a donkey. Somehow or other, we're very interested in them right now. Samantha Brooks is always interested in, in them. Associate Professor of Equine Physiology and a member of the Genetics Institute at the University of Florida. Welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. So one thing I think people get a little bit jumbled up with, you've got your wild asses, you've got your donkeys, you've got your mules, you've got your burros. They're, they're not all the same thing, right? They are not. You know, the equid family tree is still quite broad, although horses get the spotlight most mm -hmm. of the time. There are quite a few wild equids that are still out there, especially closely related to our long-eared friends, the donkeys. Um, and, and, and a mule is some kind of crossbreed, right? A, a mule is like a donkey-horse crossbreed. Do I have that right? Exactly. So donkeys and horses, they're two separate species. They have different numbers of chromosomes, but there's still enough similarity in their genomes and in their physiology that they can hybridize. So the resulting offspring is a mule. It's a hybrid. You can also go the opposite direction. You can, you can hybridize a, a donkey onto a horse and get something called a hinny. Um, but they are sterile because they have uh, a mismatch in the number of chromosomes within their own genome, so they don't make uh, fertile eggs or sperm. That can be pretty useful. They also have remarkable hybrid vigor, just like the uh, hybrid corn varieties we like to eat in the grocery store. They benefit from having all that diversity in their genome, so they get some of the great qualities of a horse, like speed and, and a little bit taller height, and some of the fantastic qualities of the donkey, like their durability and sure-footedness. Right. Uh, my neighbors actually have a donkadoodle, you know, the donkey uh, poodle things, and they have, they don't get the hip dysplasia because of the hybrid uh, uh, vigor. So, um, so we should also talk a little bit about donkeys in history. First of all, I think they've been at our side, so to speak, longer than horses and really probably played a, a pretty large role in the um, expansion of certain empires that needed to move stuff over land as opposed to on rivers. Say a little bit more about that. Oh, for sure. So this recent study that I was part of used the donkey genome to help to date when all of our domestic, domesticated donkeys last had sort of a common ancestor and where they could see signatures in the shift of the donkey population that suggested that they had teamed up with humans and were now domesticated. And the date is pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, 7,000 years ago, we started working with donkeys. That's older than the modern horse, which is still debatable, but somewhere between three and 5,000 years ago. 
um, I think the difference is, you know, they don't get quite as much of a, of a limelight, so to speak, because they, they have literally been doing the tough jobs for humans of helping us traverse difficult terrain for most of those 7,000 years. You know, they are remarkably durable. They can survive in more arid environments where horses tend not to thrive. And their uh, body size is great for help to pack commodities uh, across long distances, like the sugar cane that you mentioned. They are the perfect size to get up and down steep terrain and to work in between the rows of a crop without damaging it. And we should say that if you go back 7,000, 6,000, 5,000 years, or maybe even a little bit more recently, the donkeys, some of the donkeys that you're looking uh, at uh, back in in that era are big ass donkeys, so to speak. So sorry, there's a bad pun, but um, but these are like really you know larger donkeys than what we're used to, assuming we're used to a donkey size. Some of them were, and actually there are some rare breeds today that are quite large. There's the Poitou donkey in France, who's known for its very large size. But I think what it highlighted was that we did see some more specialization in the types of donkey breeds, particularly across Europe, up into more recent history. So um, we've lost some of our ancient lineages of donkey, including uh, some specialized, very large draft size donkeys that were likely assisting in the uh, uh, generation of a mule supply for the Roman Empire. Right. And so, um, first of all, have you seen Banshees of Anishirin yet? I have not seen it yet, surprisingly enough, although they keep me pretty busy here. <laughs> right. Well, also, if you know Martin McDonough's work, you know that no animal is necessarily safe in one of his movies in terms of what what, what can happen in the plot. But there is this, you know, this donkey that uh, the Colin Farrell's character has who follows him around. And it's a, it's a miniature donkey. I don't know exactly what the technical term for it would be, but it looks like it's about the size of maybe an Irish wolfhound or something like that. And But it, it goes in the house and it lies down on a blanket and stuff like that. And I mean, I immediately wanted one, but that's not really what donkeys are for, right? Donkeys probably are not meant to live inside and and, and be petted by us. Well, you know, um, horses in general and equids are all pretty adaptable and um, they can suit themselves to a variety of jobs. In fact, uh, small horses and maybe small donkeys as well have a niche market in being seeing eye animals for the blind. In place of dogs, in some cases, because some people have allergies or or um, can't work with dogs for other reasons, and those animals do many of the same thing, where they become housebroke and uh, learn to do things like ride on buses. Um, but with the donkey in particular, you know, their their natural behavioral repertoire is a little bit different from the horse, in that in the wild they tend to form smaller family groups. They don't they don't join up into the very large herds that Equus cabalis or domesticated horse tends to do. And they tend to be more territorial and more protective. Uh, so it's um, you know maybe a little bit dramatic, but the idea that a donkey would bond to just one human is actually not that fanciful. You know, they they have this stereotypical image of being kind of grumpy, but really they just kind of like their their one person or their one donkey friend and they they tend to be very loyal to that that companion. 
So one of the things that we've uh, tended to do with dogs uh, is to uh, overbreed them, uh, breed, uh, find a particular species or a particular type of dog that we like, uh, uh, breed of dog that we like, and then breed it, breed it, breed it. And, and it is, in all seriousness, starting to get hip dysplasia or predisposition to early blindness or, or whatever. I mean, it's like you couldn't manage uh, an animal worse than the way we do a lot of the time. <laughs> so, so talk a little bit about that with donkeys, right? I assume we want donkeys because they've got work to do. They, they probably do need to remain pretty genetically diverse. Absolutely. So there are, the uh, FAO thinks there's around 44 million donkeys uh, on the earth today, but most of that population of donkey is important for helping agrarian societies in sort of the, in in third world and challenging uh, nations and environments. So in, in our first world sort of uh, areas, we've forgotten a little bit about the donkey. And as a result, there definitely are some breeds and populations that are at risk. And we have seen a very significant population decline in both donkeys and horses after the development of mechanized transport and agricultural machinery. Um, so they are definitely worthy of protection, especially given their suitability for working in challenging environments. So uh, having a an animal partner sort of in our toolkit like the donkey that might be uh, critical to helping us find new ways to function in a warming climate, that to me sounds like insurance in the bank. Now, the good news is donkeys have lots of diversity at the moment, uh, they have not been culturally put into a situation of, of having all these individualized breed registries. So your average donkey has a lot more diversity in his genome than say your average breed dog might, like your average Labrador or poodle um, as a result. All right. We probably have to stop there, but I could talk uh, donkeys a lot longer. Uh, Samantha Brooks is an associate professor of uh, equine physiology and a member of the Genetics Institute at the University of Florida. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. And now we've come to the end of the show, but not really the end of our mission, because the next part of our mission is for you to listen to these lovely and wonderful people encourage you to... Uh, to pledge to this radio station. And if you do so right now, we'll get a little bit of credit. So think about that. You want it all. To the garden, to the garden.